Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. Here we are again with the traditional bit where I torture the two readers with weird questions and whatever. Uh, so we'll, we'll start with you, Emma. Tom and I have just been having this conversation with you about Planetfall and After Atlas. Uh, um, Tom said something about you know, the, the Split World books were, were great fun. Uh, they were hugely enjoyable to read. But now we've come to Planetfall and After Atlas and there's this quantum leap to, you know, what I mean, Tom described as great literature, uh, and you know, I, I, I saw that too. There, there was modern classic, I think modern classic, whatever. Yeah, um, the you know Planetfall with its magnificent evocation of mental illness, and After Atlas, which which I absolutely love because I, I think it's more in touch with what's going on in the world today than any other science fiction that I've read. Um, so, you know, well done on that. Does, does it feel like that from the inside? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I keep feeling like I've fallen into someone else's life, and it felt very much like that. Um, ooh, imposter syndrome. Um, no, I did write that, those books. Um, it's very, yeah, that's very odd. With the split worlds, um, yeah, it, it is um, it is lighter, um, but I feel like they still have important things that they explore um, in terms of personal freedom and feminism. Feminism, yay! Um, but they are totally different. Um, for one thing, they're, they're multiple POVs with multiple characters, and it's a huge, huge, massive world, huge, huge, massive story. With the sci-fi, um, I wanted to sink deeply into one character and... Uh, I, I sound really, it sounds like pretentious, <laughs> I'm really sorry, but, uh, but that's really what I wanted to do. I really wanted to, to go very deep into the mind of a character. Um, and I'd never written first person before. I'd never written first person present tense before. Ooh, controversial. Uh, and I will fight anyone who um, has stuff to say about um, first person present tense. Um, being bad and wrong, I will fight you. Um, so yeah, there were some really kind of um, hard decisions to make in terms of craft before starting those books because it was such a departure. And the character of Ren from Planetfall, I knew that I wanted to write about her disorder for years, but I couldn't find the right place. It was something I carried around and then she started to grow and I kind of carried that around and then suddenly everything fell into place when I read an article about uh, printing a moon base because duh that's so much more sensible instead of shipping all the stuff they just ship some printers and make it out of moon dust and I read that article and I was like I'm so on board with that that's awesome and then it, suddenly I knew that she was going to be a 3D printer engineer I'm really glad that you said what you said about After Atlas about it being in touch because the world building creating earth 80 years in the future which is where um, After Atlas is set um, it's, it's a really boring kind of starting point, but my, my thought was, what happens if TTIP goes through? And when I was starting to write the book, I was really stressed about TTIP, and I was reading up on it and very, very, very concerned about the fact that it looked like we were going to be dragged by the 1% into a world where corporations would have the right to prosecute governments. And so I spooled it forwards in my head and thought, well, if that does happen, 
where will we be 80 years in the future? What will happen? And that was where that world kind of started. And of course, it had to have 3D printing, and it had to work all the other stuff that was in Planetfall. Um, but yeah, that was... So it is, it is political science fiction. Um, and like everything I write, whether it is the split worlds where you have really evil fairies, or After Atlas, where it's quite a gritty, um, futuristic murder mystery, uh, it's all my rage. All of my rage has gone into all of these books. I'm furious about the way women are treated in real worlds and not magical worlds, and magical worlds as well. And I'm furious about the way that politically we are being governed. And so there you go, make books from rage. Yeah, so I'm glad you mentioned the feminism because that's one of the things that I spotted as a, a common trend, a common thread between the two. That, that you know, as soon as I read the first Split Worlds book, and yeah, this, this is a feminist writer, this is good, and that's carried all the way through. But uh, of course, interesting that you should mention TTIP because, of course, TTIP has now been torpedoed by something even worse. <laughs> but, but something that actually you kind of touched on towards the end of After Atlas. Which I'm not going to talk about because spoilers. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't. I don't really feel I have anything that I can say that doesn't spoiler it or anything cheerful. Um, it's it is brutal, um, and uh, yeah, there, there was discussions. There was a discussion with my editor about uh, the ending of the book, um, and uh, I I stuck to my guns and said that it has to end this way and um, I was a bit, I did have uh, worries later on as my husband will testify to um, about whether I'd made the right decision but it is uh, the right decision for the book um, and is, uh, it fits with everything. Um, but no, I don't pull my punches and nothing, nothing is hidden or dressed up. Um, and. Funny enough, you mentioned the ball for the Split Worlds. It was when I was running that live action, it was a live action role playing event and we we did a ball. And it wasn't until I was actually writing that game um, with an amazing woman called Katie Logan, who you should all worship immediately, um, that I realized I was writing social horror. It was actually horror. Um, It was my vision of the worst possible life a woman could have. Yay! Um, but it's horrifying. It's, I hope it is terrifying on some level. And After Atlas is terrifying. And I want it to terrify people. I want people to read it and go, oh shit, where the fuck are we heading? Can we do something about it? And funny enough, this came out, you know, it was published on the day of the election of Trump. That was a really, really awful day for a book to be released on, believe me, it was horrible. But then when that happened and I was thinking, I have not written a happy book here, and I've kind of warned people about the world that we are seeing played out earlier than 80 years in the future, and that is really scary. So I'm sorry, kids, it's horrible and relentlessly um, bleak, but yay, fairies. (laughs) All I can say is that you saw it coming, which I'm (laughs) really impressed by. Uh, Turning to you now, Peter, uh, uh, what you read was obviously part of uh, a longer piece. Would you like to tell us a little bit about it? Uh, Yeah, well, okay, I I probably should have uh, said at the beginning few things. Uh, it's, um, after, it's basically set up uh, after the ending of the first novel, which is waiting for editing. Um, 
Yeah, well, again, um, as, as Emma said, so, uh, <laughs> um, what can I tell you? Um, well, can we read the rest of it? That's what I want to know. I don't know. I can think of a copy, but um, it hasn't been published anywhere. Um, I, I've sent it somewhere and waiting for, for a reply. Um, the, the story itself is 10,000 words-ish, the, the novel is way, but I don't know. Um, it's kind of a little bit bleak, but in a different way. Um, um, yeah, um, we've discussed, we've basically in the, in the novel world, we are playing a lot with uh, genetics. Uh, however, in a, yeah, which I don't know whether I should mention that because it's a spoiler. <laughs> Although, yeah, it's kind of fairly, fairly early in the novel, so it's an alien organism that we've managed to discover that does different things to, to, to us. Uh, it allows us to, to uh, enhance certain things, uh, uh, change certain things in, in our biology. Uh, but obviously, because we're human, we're playing with it, not quite knowing what the heck it is. So, um, yeah. Sorry, I know it's rumbling, but yeah. Yeah, we are very, very curious monkeys, and it's not always good for us. But I, you know, I don't think there was a huge amount of spoiler there. You mentioned genetics, you yeah. mentioned symbionts. I think we, we all had a fair idea as to what it was, except perhaps the, uh, the alien stuff. But uh, I, I was quite impressed that you set the story in Pennsylvania. I'm sure that will amuse a few people. <laughs> well, this is, this is the funny... Uh, I was going to, um, I think, one of the uh, meetings in, in, in uh, what's the Bristol uh, Science Fiction Group, and, and I've passed through. I've passed through a sign, and I had to actually go back and, and make sure that I read it right. And it said Pennsylvania. And I thought, well, this is really cool. So I looked it up, and some, well, yeah, it's a village, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, by Bristol. And uh, obviously, in the world, we've we've had some recent wars, wars so uh, things got uh, leveled a little bit here and there. And hence the reclamation area because it's where where the uh, where the tri where the rebuilding gets slightly different. So yeah. Okay. Uh, coming back to you, Emma, I did actually ask people on Twitter if they had any questions for you. We, we've had one come in. There's somebody wants to know when your favourite time for writing is. Time period, as in rather than like three o'clock on a Tuesday afternoon, because that's <laughs> a really nice time. Um, <laughs> That's a really hard question to answer because I think I'm trying to kind of sort through in my head if there's a particular genre that fits with a particular time period that I like, but there, there isn't. You know, I'll very happily play with a mystery or a murder mystery, whether it's in a um, alternate Victorian London um, or if it's 80 years in the future. Um, it seems that I prefer the future for kind of in-depth psychological studies of really, really either mentally ill or very damaged people. So that's my kind of time period of choice um, for, for that sort of thing. Um, and it, of course in the split worlds I mashed up, it wasn't even truly the Georgian era, they were people, characters in those books which had lived, who were born in the Georgian era and were still alive at the turn of the 21st century and they just kind of held on to their little pockets of reality and so I love all of it really. Um, I don't think I could write in the 1960s, I'm not too sure about that period um, and 
I think there are there are interesting things to be found. There are certain periods of history that I get really, really, really geekily excited about, like the 1850s. I get really, really, really excited about the 1850s. They were so interesting, and so many really incredible stuff was happening in the kind of the socio-political, socio-economic sphere as well, and and the effects of the Industrial Revolution and how it impacted on society. I can really nerd at people for quite a long time about that. So obviously I went and wrote stuff that has magicians running uh, the industrial society. So usually there is some kind of nerdy thing that I really like about a period. So for the future stuff, the science fiction, I get really, really nerdy excited about 3D printing because that's awesome. It's so cool. And about kind of neural implants and, and things like that and enhanced... Um, I mean, it's, it's a trope in sci-fi now, you know, enhanced vision. We all grew up watching it in the original Terminator film, you know, how, how many of us are writing these books because we saw that Terminator film and all that data, and we're like, oh my god, that would be so cool, I want to have that vision, that would be awesome. And so it comes out, you know, years later when we're all grown up writing our sci-fi. But that, that's really cool, I love all that kind of stuff. But I also really like the questions that it leads to. And that's, you know, some of the things that I explore in After Atlas, you know, what is the nature of privacy? And what is the nature of privacy now? And I get really stressed about that now, let alone 80 years in the future when everyone's got a neural chip and really evil GovCorp um, entities that you know, rule over the world. So yeah, it, I guess it's the, the nerdy fascination that leads to a question rather than a particular time period. That was a really ram- rambly response to that. Peter, would you like to try and answer that one? <laughs> <laughs> um, I prefer between um, 10 o'clock and 12. After a first cup of tea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Kids are in bed. I, can... <laughs> um, um, uh, I don't know. Um, future, generally. I, when I was young and had long hair and, and I don't know, I thought I was rebelling against the world or whatever, uh, I used to like writing fantasy and it was terrible. Um, so kind of look at it now, it's fantasy, cliche, after cliche. Um, science fiction because we're living it and we're going to be living it uh, further on and the, the uh, border between, between what is um, what is the future imagined and the future present is is non-existent anymore. I mean, there's um, <laughs> Pokemon Go talking about uh, enhanced reality, um, all of that, and it's 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 yeah, I'm, I'm less than rage, more scared of of, of what uh, what it's getting us to. So that's why. Alrighty, so I think it's time to turn it over to the audience now. Has anybody out there got any questions they would like to ask either of our readers? Yes, John. Um, do you find a common reaction after reading After Atlas is to start the Civil War? Um, just, just, that was yeah. just, just in case the mic isn't picking that up, that was John Hawksreath, and he asked, is it a common reaction after reading After Atlas, wanting to start a civil war? <laughs> uh, I've had lots of people um, contact me going, what the, oh my god, or oh, that, that kind of thing. Um, if people wanted to start a civil war after reading it, I'd feel I'd done some of my job. Um, I am furious about the way things are in society and I am currently in the real world trying to find a way to change that and 
am incredibly frustrated by my own failings um, and the failings of the system. How people react to a book, of course, is entirely beyond my control. And I'm usually glad that there has been a reaction. I think one of the things that terrifies an author more than anything is that somebody would read your book and go, nah. and that would be the most painful. If people are furious after finishing it because of what it invites you to consider about the world, awesome, yes. Yes, that's what I want. I want people to be angry because I'm really fucking angry too and I think we should be more angry. Um, and we are so British and so polite and so comfortable um, in our lives, in society at the moment. You know, I, I feel kind of... At the moment, I'm feeling massively privileged to be able to be angry about this, to be in a position to be thinking about what I could do about this. I'm not at the day-to-day -day grindstone that so many people are on zero-hour contracts and worrying about how they're going to feed their kids that night. And what infuriates me is that society is still creating swathes of the population that face those issues that people faced in the 18-fucking-50s. And we are now in the 21st century and this is still happening. And I want people to be angry about that. So if I can do that with a book, awesome, because I can't think of any other way to do it uh, that wouldn't lead me to being imprisoned. Um, so it's probably just as well. I love that we're earning our explicit tag in all the best ways. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. No, not at I get all. really angry it's, about this. You know, we, we get an explicit tag every time Gareth comes to read. <laughs> so I love swearing. It's one of my favourite things. Okay. So. We have a question at the back. Um, have you seen the film Children of Men? Because that's what your book reminds me of. Okay. Question about the film Children of Men. Uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, I saw the film. Um, I find it interesting that it reminded you of that. Um, but again, you know, everybody brings something different to the table. Um, somebody said to me that they felt that it reminded them of Blade Runner. And I was like, what? Um, and then when I started to think about it, it was like, oh, yeah, okay, there are, there are some bits, you know, there's a guy investigating a crime in the future, duh! <laughs> of course it's going to remind people. But in my mind, it's, it feels completely different and it's a completely different thing. So what was it about it that reminded you? Well, I mean, the, the supermarket, the old-fashioned supermarket, or old-fashioned then after, but not, not now, but it's, like, it's all very previous to the VIP. Yeah, that was that was something that I there there is uh, one of the themes of the book is um, is food politics, um, and this is yet another thing that I get very angry about. As my husband can attest to, I spend most of my time being really angry about the world, um, and one of the things that angers me uh, a lot uh, are lots of people preaching to people about how they should eat and how they should prepare their food and where they should buy it when often lots of people don't have any choice on A, how much money they can spare to spend on food, how much time they have to prepare these very thoughtful, healthy meals, and have time to ex all of that kind of stuff. So I kind of scaled that to the future and thought, okay, the population is going to be 10 billion and how is food produced? There's food printing, 
is food and food preparation not only going to be a political issue but also a social snobbery issue of oh darling I only buy real food at my supermarket and I cook it all myself I can just imagine people like that when most of the population has a printer at home they can press a button and it spurts out something that's perfectly adequate so yeah there, there was an element of that sorry yeah, there are no people being eaten in, in Ataratlas, I really hasten to say. All of the, um, the protein tubes that go into the food printers are all vetted by the best corporate uh, producers, and there are lots and lots of layers of legal tape that uh, are involved in producing it. All of the science fiction that we produce now stands on the shoulders of all of the science fiction that comes before it, of course. And every single person that reads a science fiction novel is going to find their own parallels. Um, and sometimes it may be a, a personal emotional experience that can resonate, even if that person hasn't read any sci-fi. Um, so, yeah, one of those things. Actually, the book that it reminded me of is John Brunner's The Sheep Look Up, because that is very much a book about the world being slowly boiled and not realising it's been boiled. I haven't read that, but that sounds and, uh, like my sort of thing. You really should, yes. Yeah. It's an absolutely <laughs> brilliant book. Um, okay, have we got any other questions out there? Yes. Um, well, when you finish um, writing something, do you find it more exciting or daunting to share it with other people? Uh, it's When I finished writing my very first book years and years and years ago, and I'd been trying for years to write, and then I didn't write anything for 10 years, um, and there is a whole story there, believe me. And then I worked on it, sorted my head out a bit, finally wrote my first book, and I printed it out and I hugged it. I literally hugged the manuscript and I might even have had a little cry. And it was such a big deal. Now it's like, oh, thank God, I've got to get that off to my agent and what is the next thing? And it's it, being on the, the, I don't want to say treadmill because that makes it sound really awful, because it's not, it's awesome um, having a career as an author, but now, I, I think recently I've just finished writing my ninth or tenth novel. I'm even at the point where I'm losing count of how many of them I've written. Um, but the thing that has not changed is that when I'm at about 90% through the novel, I get really miserably stressed and I hate it. I think it's awful. It's terrible. I can't write anything. I've wasted all of this time on this, this heap of rubbish. I'm going to send it to my agent and she's going to say, Em, look, I'm really sorry it's been good, but I'm going to dump you now because you can't write books anymore and you suck and then I think no she's not even going to notice and then they're going to publish it and the entire world is going to say oh my god this is just the most awful pile of rubbish Ugh. and I'm convinced that that's going to happen um, and that is just the fear of it being finished and the thing that you have to do or that I have to do at that point is to stop and have a cup of tea and say oh come on get a grip this happens in every single damn book and we're at 90 percent and we've been there and we've done that and i might go to pete and say it's all terrible and he'll say look darling are you like 90 percent did we do this last time and I'm like, oh god yeah i'm really sorry i'll go back to work now and that's you just have to kind of push through it um but when it comes to finishing a book i have to kind of remind myself to go yay because usually i'm thinking what's next what's next what's next um I should learn how to celebrate better, I think. 
Yeah, I, I get that from Aliette as well on Twitter. She's always talking about how much the writing sucks until she's finished it and then it's on to the, the next one. Yeah. I, I think when I, I finish a story, it's a case of, oh, thank goodness I can stop working on that, keep a shit and try and write something. <laughs> 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 uh, Pete, how, how's your relationship with writing? You've just, you've just described uh, a lot about how I felt about today. Um, um, yeah, I'm at the 90% at the moment of the novel. Yeah, um, it's, I, I, I I, every time I finish something, I, I, I'm absolutely certain it's uh, terrible. Uh, and uh, yeah, yeah, and um, I'm trying not to prove myself right. <laughs> um, it's, Sort of, I mean, yeah, then, then, then I, if, if it gets published uh, in a few, few instances, I kind of, I don't know, where you get a, but if, if you ever get a nice sentence somewhere there, it's like, damn, well, they notice it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, um, yeah that's, that's, that's pretty much uh, how it is. Um, I've got lots of ideas, but uh, not very much time to write, so uh, every time I finish something, it's yeah, a bit like, well, should, should I start editing it straight away or would I have got time to actually start writing something new? Um, so yeah, it's, it's always a choice at but, but the moment. Let's put my reviewer hat on briefly. One of the things that I noticed over the years is the thing that tends to make authors really happy is when you write something in, re in a review and they think, wow, they actually got what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> is, is that the same for you? Oh my god, yes. Yeah. Um, there, was, there was a review of Planetfall where someone gave this really beautiful description of how I was very clever because I'd obviously written this allegory of the Garden of Eden and I was like, what? Did I? <laughs> no, I didn't, but thank you for saying that I'm really clever because I wasn't clever in that way at all. It did not even enter my mind anything to do with, I mean, obviously everything is kind of underpin you know, it's all in the mulch and who knows maybe unconsciously something of that bled in but it was not a conscious decision it was not a conscious exploration and so whenever I, I'm, a, I'm a real scaredy cat when it comes to reviews and you know in all honesty I have an anxiety disorder so you know I have negative modifiers every time I have to roll the dice when a review comes in am I feeling very anxious and I usually ask my husband to read them first because I'm such a baby. <laughs> so um, when I read a review where he says it's okay, you're not going to want to just cry forever if you read this. Um, and they, they say the things that I was consciously exploring, then yes, there is a moment of, oh yes, excellent. Because there is the sense that I've done my job, um, that, you know, that there is that, that connection. But I don't want that to make it sound like if somebody finds something that I didn't consciously write about that they're wrong. Not at all. As I said before, everybody brings something new to it. And, and sometimes it's actually really nice if somebody finds another angle that I've never considered. Um, I think in my head, well, I, I didn't aim to write like that or write about that thing, but that's awesome that you found it there. Um, yay. Um, as long as they're mostly not saying, my God, this is awful, you should go and lynch this woman the next time you see her. I'm, I'm mostly happy, to be honest. It's really nerve-wracking. 
hmm, I'm now thinking furiously about the Garden of Eden analogy and whether it works or not. But, uh, yeah, no, I, no, by the way, I am much worse of a wuss than you are. I never read reviews. I don't ego scan or... or I don't know, like no, that. I can't do um, that. And part of that, of course, is because Kevin is 5,000 miles away, so I'm really upset he can't give me a look. Yeah. <laughs> Pete, do you ever read your reviews? Uh, yeah, there's not that many of them, so yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. <laughs> not a complicated answer to that question. Um, it's always nice to find if, because my stuff only been published in anthologies um, so far, so it's always nice if it gets mentioned anywhere in the review. Oh, it's that's always the like, nicest thing, yeah. You know, there's, there's what, 10, 12 of, of other people, and they've mentioned me and, and another two, it's like, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, yeah, it's, it's really it's really <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, like you said, if, if if they if they get something, if if somebody mentions about something that I put there on purpose and and try to, I always whenever I give stuff to my wife, she's she's like, but it it's a little bit too vague. It's like no, no, it isn't. Forget it. So yeah, it, 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 yeah. If 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 it happens that, that yeah, it's mentioned, it's really like yeah, yeah, I told you so. So. That's actually something, uh, something that's quite uh, funny that I knew was going to happen because I, I've followed the award for many years is when you end up on the shortlist for the clerk, you, you have this strange situation where suddenly you are noticed, yay, and also suddenly you're responsible for the death of all good science fiction and an indication <laughs> of how um, terrible things are happening in the world of science fiction because your book ended up on that list and that obviously proves that case. Um, and I, I understand something that to those that effect was said the other day and a friend of mine flagged it up and I, I messaged him and said uh, I was kind of expecting this to happen um, how bad is it and he was like don't, just don't read it and don't worry about it and it's like yeah this isn't actually as personal a thing anymore now because After Atlas is being judged against the entire body of science fiction work for the year and I think I can let myself off the hook a little bit there because that's a really scary, scary standard that you can't you can't do anything about. But it is kind of I mean, you know, as a as a woman writing political fiction, I've obviously been blamed for like the death of Western civilization already many times globally. And the male um, dominancy in the in the genre, isn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something I faced personally, um, and and I have other things to say and uh, no surprise to anyone, be really angry about. But um, it goes to a whole new level when you're, you're, you're part of the, the Clark thing. To be honest, uh, once I'd seen the, the bunch of appalling wankers that were responsible for that anti-Clark thing, I was just dismissed the whole thing <laughs> be, because I knew it was going to be a load of pretense of shit work. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Yeah. Alrighty. Um, anybody, anybody else got any questions that we can swear about? There's one over there. <laughs> Okay. So, uh, are you okay to go to run another live role anyway? <laughs> 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 I vowed never again. I, for the for the rest of the audience, the person asking this question, Matthew, played one of the characters from my Split Worlds novel, the really evil, evil, evil Bertrand Persifolia Viola, and he played him so brilliantly that I've actually been slightly scared of him ever since. <laughs> um, he was just so unashamedly evil the entire evening. Um, the the Spitwell's Mass Ball um, was, I think, the most terrifying, and I've done a lot of scary things. I've played just a minute in front of an audience of 2,000 people. That was really scary, but it was not as scary as running a LARP for 80-odd people set in the world of my books. Um, 
it was excruciatingly <laughs> awful in many respects, and also the best thing I've ever done. And I have no regrets, um, but I do still remember painfully the 24 hours before the event when I really, really so nearly catastrophic. No, I actually did catastrophically lose my shit on several occasions. And it was really quite spectacular. And so I vowed and I promised my husband, never again, never again are we doing that because I don't ever want to be in a car with my husband again on the way to an event driving in the wrong direction because we were both so busy running through the day that we were on the wrong road and realising and literally screaming, just screaming at the top of my lungs in the car. I've never done that before. And that's what it made me do. So I'm not going to do that again. Uh, you know, LARP is one of my, my greatest loves, but I, I don't think I could put my husband let alone me through that again. Sounds like Kevin and I running a world comic. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, we're doing it again next year. Except I'm going to get out a world comic free card because I'm going to be, I'm not allowed into America and he's got to get out a world comic free card because he doesn't have to chair it, somebody else is chairing it, so uh, that's cool. So, um, yeah, so no, I mean it was really spectacular and I'm so impressed with, with what you achieved there. Maybe what you need is a producer. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody who can take all your good ideas and make it happen for you. That would be awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, Katie, uh, Katie Logan, who you must all worship, uh, she runs a Tumblr called Ladies Who LARP, which I um, thoroughly, thoroughly recommend. Um, she, she did a lot of the heavy lifting, but being the person I am, I, I can always find something to really freak out about. Um, and at like midnight the night before, it was finishing my costume for the very next day. Um, and kind of like ugly crying whilst studying <laughs> this robe à la française. And it was just the moment, I don't actually understand how that happened or how we got through that day, but it was awesome and great fun. And the pictures were amazing after they looked like out there out of the film, which makes me very happy. Yeah, yeah pictures, absolutely awesome. And that's, that's getting in the thing, what I'm writing. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Alrighty. Um, anybody got any other questions? Uh, yes, I'm real. Uh, Tom, did you have a question? Oh, I, I was uh, going to be very cheeky and uh, abuse my position with the microphone. Um, <laughs> to, uh, being even cheeky, I'm going to steal this question from another uh, well-known local podcast. If you had to deal with the devil and um, <laughs> you could remove one trope from science fiction, oh. um, I know, right? Um, but the deal being that one has to remain in all science fiction. What trope would go and what trope would be everywhere? But we'll start with Emma for some reason. Oh wow, that the reason I'm laughing is because that was actually a question I gave to another another person in my podcast. <laughs> and now I realise how evil I was asking that question, so that's really hard. Um, which trope would I get rid of in sci-fi? Oh, mm, uh, I don't know if it's a trope, strictly speaking, uh, but non-characters. Uh, characters which are there as vehicles for ideas rather than being fully-fledged, three-dimensional, psychologically real people. Um, I mean, obviously that's moving, that's a, very much a criticism leveled at the kind of the golden age of sci-fi, of which many books I have a deep adoration, believe me, um, but some of the characters left a lot to be desired. So I would like to leave behind science fiction where the purity of the idea takes precedence over the realism of the characters within the piece. And I, I no doubt I'm going to get into huge trouble saying that. And this is going to be the thing that I've said that I'll worry about when I'm lying in bed tonight thinking, did I say something really terrible? And this is the thing that is going to haunt me 
but I really, really do want to see, and we are already seeing that. That's what I feel about the current age of science fiction, is that we are seeing so many authors now who are doing both brilliantly. Um, Aliette Bodard is a, an excellent example. Um, and I love, love, love her work deeply, and in particular her science fiction. Oh my God, oh, um, really, really amazing concepts, amazing characters. Um, and that's, that's what I'd be, like to leave behind. Things, something that always has to stay in, um, well, obviously the really awesome AI that, you know, talks to people and um, it, it, that's why I've got it in my books. I mean, come on, I wanted to play with that and I'd want to see that. Maybe not in every book, I might get bored of it. Um, but the, the exploration of the relationship between a human being and technology and the points where it is a a help and where it can be a hindrance. I'm endlessly fascinated with that. And again, that's one of the things in, in After Atlas. Um, so yeah, I can't get enough of that. That's, that's kind of like my, my crack. <laughs> um, faster than light travel. Well, you want to get rid of it or keep it? Yeah, get rid of it. Okay. Not, not in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, I'm not talking we couldn't explore the universe. It's sci-fi, isn't it? Um, I just would love to see stuff done differently than warp drives and... Uh, the warp drives are cool! They're cool, but they... Uh, oh, come on! <laughs> yeah, how, many, how, how many times? Um, or, or Stargates. Um, the, Stargates this... are cool! <laughs> come on! I'm just winding you up. They are cool! We'll, we'll talk about it later. Um, <laughs> Um, no, but there's, there's, so, there's so many uh, there's so many other ways that that you can uh, get to from A to B uh, with um, transporters. Don't tell me you want to get rid of transporters. Where transporters? Uh, no, transporters. They're they're possible. So why not? Yeah, there's there's so many different ways that you can that you can actually travel between the stars. That uh, and 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 the, the length of the even if you take out the traveling, well, the, the, there is a way we can travel instantaneously from one point to another. Um, which is actually how they tra travel in the book or in the story that I read today. Um, however, there's, if, you, if you take into account the time it takes to get from one point to another via other means than faster than light travel, if you, if you don't remove that, uh, that limitation there, although it can be boring on the way, it, it also gives a lot of, uh, I don't know, a lot of reality to, to, to science fiction. Um, I mean, I, that's, that's why I liked um, the Expanse series, uh, where they where they travel, where it takes time, it takes months to get from one point to another, and even though the action takes good pace, it still takes bloody months. Um, the uh, Gene Wolfe's uh, Long Sun uh, cycle, where, which happens on a generation ship traveling between the stars. Ian Banks' uh, The Algebraist, there's a part where, they, where basically the whole novel happens during the time when the when the means for traveling faster than light is, is off. So um, and it allows for certain things to happen uh, sort of a little bit more naturally. So yeah, all get rid of that. Don't hit me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> what would you keep? keep? What would I keep? Um, out of the tropes? Oh. Transporters. What would I keep? Um, 
I'd like to see um, tricorders as, as such. And AI is obviously, yeah. uh, tricorders would be cool. Uh, yeah. And, and I, would, I would love to see a, a lot more uh, merging between uh, humans and technology uh, without it being Terminator and, and then cyborgs uh, as such, but, but uh, the, the, the whole assistance of, um, of technology and, and how it influences both the social interactions and everything else. I'm going to use uh, my position as chair to answer this one. The, the thing that I want to see the end of, apologies to the expanse here, which I love dearly, but it is guilty of it, I want to see no more fridging. Mm. Yeah, no more killing off of characters, particularly female relatives, just to give the character motivation. That applies to all genres, <laughs> yeah, everywhere, in all mediums, ever. Yep, so we're going to get rid of that one. As to what we keep, I'm very tempted to say oh, that, that I'd like to see the Dos Pastos technique used everywhere because science fiction does need info dumps and I think you know, the, the, the idea of putting in that bit of fake newspaper or news reports or whatever as a means of getting information across, which is, um, John Browning used it really successfully in Stand on Zanzibar and when the sheep woke up. Kim Stanley Robinson did it in uh, 2312 and in the, the new one, New York 2140. Um, and Lyda Morehouse, whose, whose books I, I do um, publish, used it. Matt Gareth has used it. Um, so, you know, it, it's, um, it's a really powerful technique for getting that info dump across in an interesting and entertaining manner. Whether it would lose its luster if you had it in every single book, you know, I, I suspect that that might be a problem. So, basically, I think every book should just have feminism in it. <laughs> The world should have more feminism in it. Yeah, yeah, totally. All right. Any more questions? Okay, so we haven't had a question yet about Team Jeopardy. <laughs> no, I think we really ought. <laughs> um, so can you tell us, have, have we, we got anybody interesting coming up on the show? <laughs> Um, well, I don't know. When will this go out? 1st um, uh, of June. 1st yes. of June. Generally, we, we have a rule that um, we don't discuss guests way ahead, and we don't discuss the, the next guests until the inner circle of our patrons hear about it, okay. um, which is why we're reluctant. Um, yep. But our inner circle has been informed of our next guest. The next two, though. The next two. So are you OK? I'm just... Um, talking to my co-writer here. Um, it's up to you, lover. Uh, well, certainly the next one. Good one. Okay, the next one. So the next one is Dave Hutchinson, um, who uh, I'm very, very much looking forward to. I'm actually interviewing him tomorrow, and I'm really looking forward to, to that. He's going to be a great guest. Uh, and the other question I, I have about Team Jeopardy is, uh, at the end of the show, you always subject your guests to a, a little bit of mild peril. <laughs> <laughs> Has anybody actually died as a result? <laughs> well, Gareth did, but we did some emergency surgery, and uh, you're looking very well, Gareth. Well done. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's actually, um, we have very strict rules uh, when it comes to the creation of Tea and Jeopardy. Uh, all of the humour has to be at the expense of me or the butler or the situation, never at the expense of the guest. Never, ever at the expense of the guest. And this year we have a couple of incredibly high profile guests and that is going to be absolutely very much the, the line we have always towed and we are going to continue to tow that line. Um, the other rule with the peril as well is that this is the guest who comes up with the solution. 
and uh, we asked them what they would do and you know we say you know whatever you have it can be a fantastical solution it can be um, magic or anything you want to summon whatever however you want to solve this problem it's up to you and then we create the um, the silliness um, around that so we haven't had anyone die because we only interview brilliant clever creative, sparkling people. Uh, Gareth has uh, is, is been a guest. And um, so, yeah, they, they've always got out in the end, much to the annoyance of Latimer the butler. <laughs> it's a very silly podcast. Can I ask a question? Because uh, I know you, you basically both, well, both on uh, Tea and Jeopardy. Have you ever, have you ever uh, produced any fiction together and, and if so, if, if yes, how did it work out? And if no, why not? <laughs> I remember asking that one when they were on Freak together last time, which is why they didn't ask it this time. <laughs> Don't kill each other, please. Um, Tea and Jeopardy is the only thing that we've created uh, as a distinct thing. We are both heavily involved in each other's creative works. So whenever we are writing uh, a first draft, there are lots of discussions. I mean, we, we live together, obviously. We see a lot of each other. We both work from home. We spend practically 24 hours a day, seven days a week with each other. And so if we didn't talk about what we were working on at the time, it would be really weird, for one thing. Um, but we're very heavily involved in each other's process. In terms of prose, we haven't written anything together. There is always the question mark of one day, and, there's all, and there is a particular project that we have discussed that we would do, and there are various other projects in different media that we have been having more conversations about. Um, but one of the things that is the biggest obstacle is that we're just really bloody busy writing the stuff that we're contracted to write. And, um, you know, between uh, various series and producing Tea and Jeopardy and various other things that have been cropping up for us, um, and in particular this year, um, it's actually really hard to find the time. And once one of us is locked in a project, you know, we, we both respect the fact that there, there ain't nothing else that's happening. We used to run role-playing games for each other, and I used to run a game, and that stopped when I started writing really, really, really seriously, because I couldn't devote the brain to both. Um, and so, that, you know, there are terrible sacrifices that have been made to create the books we write at home, and um, yeah, so role-playing was one of them. It's really sad. Um, so yeah, there, there isn't room really in our heads for anything else. Any other questions? I just want to sort of see if there's anything else coming up, sort of uh, book-wise, or uh, anything else that either of you would like to promote whilst you're here. Um, oh, blimey. Uh, so one of the things that's uh, a first for me this year is that I'm going to be teaching an Arvon course. Um, a writing science fiction and fantasy course in October uh, and I'm really excited about that because for years and years and years and years and years I was signed up to the Arvon course newsletter and I would read them and I would really kind of cover like oh that looks really good and then getting an email out of the blue from them asking if I would tutor was really really super exciting so that's happening this year um, and there's Worldcon of course um, in June, the fifth and final book of the Split World series is being published, um, which is uh, the end, the culmination of a huge, huge amount of work. Um, and I'm unsurprisingly horribly nervous about it and insecure. 
and then later in October the second in the Industrial Magic series which uh, is a series of novellas that's being published by Tor, uh, Tor.com specifically um, comes out which is called Weaver's Lament. The first one, Brothers Ruin, came out in March um, and they're hard to get hold of in the UK um, so I, I have some copies if people want copies. Um, so yeah, there's, there's lots going on this year. Um, should we say something about the thing? I don't know. What thing he's going to say? Uh, yes, yes, yes. There's um, there's the Fairford Literary um, Festival, third of June, which is on the third of June. Yes, Paul would kill me if I got that wrong. Um, which has been organised by Paul Cornell, um, and I'm going to be doing a workshop on anxiety and writing, despite anxiety. Um, and uh, Sarah McIntyre is going to be there, and I'm a huge fan of Sarah McIntyre, and I'm very excited about that. And there's some guy called Stephen Moffat's going to be there, but Sarah McIntyre, people, is going to be there, and she's fabulous. Um, she has great hats and great outfits, and she's hugely, hugely talented, and uh, has been doing some really fantastic work with the Pictures Mean Business campaign, where she's been um, bringing more awareness to the problem that people uh, talk about picture books in particular, but all books, and don't credit the artists who do the illustrations, even in children's picture books, where it's you know really very much a really important part of it. Um, and I really admire her for for speaking up about the issue um, because. As it says, pictures mean business, this is their livelihood. And when they're constantly overlooked and never named, it's really hard for people to find out who these illustrators are. Um, and she, uh, co she illustrates and co-writes stories with um, Philip Reeve, who I have a deep love um, and respect and deep admiration for as a writer. And oh my god, you have to read his books immediately. Um, so yeah, she's fabulous. Peter, anything coming up? Um, I'm waiting on the um, reply about the story um, that I've read to you. Um, there is a thing that will, will most likely start in God, July, uh, which is going to be uh, a new radio show, um, which is going to be about science fiction, and it's going to be... Uh, I can say that we haven't we haven't finalised everything with with uh, the radio yet in terms of um, of uh, times and, and everything and schedules. Uh, and so I'm not giving you a date, but uh, it's going to be promoting uh, science fiction authors. But it's going to be a little bit less than a little bit different than just coming and reading your stuff. Uh, so it's going to be uh, connected with uh, music and uh, other things. But I'll, I'll, I'll spill more beans when when I've got the dates uh, ready. Um, apart from that, I would love to tell you that there's going to be masses of stuff released, but I haven't really had time to do much less. There will be two books, but I think they're not coming up till, yeah, they're definitely not coming up till 2018, so you're not going to remember. It's, it's uh, two volumes of This Twisted Earth, uh, which should. We will post links on the Facebook and on our Twitter account, so just keep watching. Also available. Uh, yeah, just thinking about upcoming stuff. Towards the end of the month, um, Neil Gaiman and Amanda Palmer are going to be at Hay Festival. Uh, so if you have free time, it is during the week. I think it's uh, the 27th or 28th, something like that. Um, so I, uh, I've got tickets. I'm going up there to see them. Um, and that should be good. Neil is being interviewed by Stephen Fry, which is going to be amusing. And Amanda's playing a gig in the evening. 
Um, I'm not doing very much at all, uh, unless you happen to be in London on the 10th of June, in which case I'm giving a lecture on queer women at Royal Holloway College, um, which is <laughs> probably not really a science fiction thing. <laughs> um, although you never know. <laughs> okay, uh, has anybody else got any announcements of forthcoming stuff? I do. <laughs> I'm uh, hosting a event at the Bath Fringe Festival on the 2nd of June. So you can come to the Fairford on the Saturday, on the Friday night at 8 o'clock in Birdle's Yard in Bath. There's uh, more Banksy than Bonnets. It's where the uh, Bristol writers take over the Bath Fringe Festival for a night. And, uh, there'll be a series of uh, short comedy stories uh, sort of, uh, from a variety of performers across Bristol. Um, and it's eight pounds a ticket or six pounds for concessions. Uh, but we got a five star review last year, so I'm very confident that uh, it'll be another great night. And then uh, we're here again on the 19th of June, and not rarely we actually have the next guest <laughs> in the audience for this one, but we have uh, Peter Newman. Well, do, do you want to have you chosen what you're going to read? Are you going to read from a new book? I'm going to talk about it if you want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, luckily, in the, in the car, <laughs> I was talking there about it. So I have this thing where the third book, well, if you come next month, by the way, I'll probably say something similar, so you can switch off when I do it next month. But, um, yeah, I've had the third book in my trilogy just come out, and I thought, I hate spoilers, so if I read anything for the third book, I'm going to totally spoil anyone who's not read the other books. But then, someone, who was not me in the car, had a brilliant idea, which is that there's a short story called The Hammer and the Goat. Um, so I'll probably read from that, which is set in the universe, and I will, I'll give you the spiel for that next month. Okay, that's great, looking forward to it. That's good. Yes. Uh, that reminds me, actually, that, that I will be fresh back off the aircraft from Dortmund, where I'm going to see Eurocom. Uh, that will be fun, Yay. I can report back on exciting science fiction stuff in Germany. I would have just uh, been finished working at the Bristol Comedy Garden, which isn't sci-fi fantasy related at all, but it's a great comedy festival. If any of you have got tickets, uh, I'll probably be checking your tickets. But the, that's the thing as I do for a free t-shirt and free entry. Uh, I'll be there all week, so come and see Any other announcements? In which case, it really remains for me to say thank you very much to our two readers, Peter Schwedbeck and Daniel Newman. Uh, thanks also to the Volley, of course. Lovely to have the bar up here. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, and thank you all for coming. We will see you in June with Pete. <laughs> the Bristol Con Fringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Con Fringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe. <laughs>